Our passage this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles there in the seats, that should be page 858. Last week, we found Jesus being presented in the temple uh, when offerings were made in his infancy. And this morning, we find Jesus in the temple again, but having aged to 12. And in this picture of Jesus at the temple, we gain more insight into the life and identity of our Savior. Let's uh, attend now to God's word, asking that the Spirit would bless it in our hearing and in our understanding. Luke chapter 2, 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What seems like a pretty normal event in the life of a second temple family uh, comes to have great significance and meaning for those that would later follow Jesus. They're going about their religious duties. They are annually supposed to go to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And even though the legal requirement was only for men, we see Mary and Jesus accompanying Joseph to go worship. And then as the family seeks to travel back home, when it is the norm for many people to travel together, Jesus gets lost in the shuffle. There's a miscommunication. There's assumptions made. And Jesus is left behind as he stays in the temple. But this ordinary picture in the life of an ordinary family has profound significance. For this is the word of God about the Son of God who is the Savior of God's people. So as we attend to these events and their significance, let's pray that the Lord would bless us by His Spirit with understanding. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your eternal word, your unchanging truth, and the fact that you reveal yourself to us in the things that you have done and in the record of those things in your word. 
Bless our consideration of your word this morning to your glory and our help. Amen. Who is Jesus? That is a question pondered by the youngest of children and the most advanced of scholars. And I'm not going to pretend that I'll answer that question fully this morning, nor even by the time that we've finished this long series in Luke. But it's an important question. Because who we think Jesus is shapes how we respond to him. Do we respond with skepticism? Do we respond with scorn, rejection? Or do we, will we respond with faith and trust? Each time we come to Scripture, we have the opportunity to have truth confirmed about who Jesus is and also to evaluate our assumptions against the truth of what Scripture reveals. And this passage this morning is a unique opportunity to challenge some of our assumptions, to confirm some of the truths of who Jesus is. It's unique because this is the first passage in Scripture, historically, in terms of the timeline, in which Jesus speaks. In many ways, this is the first time when, when Jesus really seems like a character in, in the Gospels, because earlier in the birth narrative, it's all about how people are responding to him, what they're seeing, what they're doing, and Jesus barely shows up. He's just kind of in the background. But here, for the kind of the first time in the Gospels, Jesus is front and center. Uh, but it's not just its uniqueness that matters, but what it helps us do in our understanding. Uh, think maybe of a time in your life when you were in a relationship and things were getting serious and you start to share family photos of you when you were an awkward teenager or a cute little kid where they know you at this stage in life as an adult or, or young adult and yet uh, that picture is reshaped by looking back at who you were. They see that goofy grin or realize that you haven't changed your hairstyle in 15 years. And that confirms certain things and expectations of who you are. In this snapshot from an earlier time in life, we get to see through the lens, not just of who they are now, but who they have been until this time. In this passage, we see the, G the seeds of who Jesus will be before they come to full bloom in his later ministry. And what we come to understand about Jesus in this passage that's confirmed through the rest of the ministry and the testimony of Scripture is Jesus' humanity, what Jesus' priorities are, and Jesus' humility. This morning, let's examine who Jesus is that we might respond aright with faith according to his humanity, his priority, and his humility. First, Jesus' humanity. Now, of course, you might say, Yes, we know Jesus is human. Didn't we just go through the birth narrative? You know, Mary conceived, gave birth. Yes, Jesus is a human being. But those verses that we've read earlier in Luke and in the beginning of Matthew's gospel as well are full of the supernatural, full of signs and miracles. There's prophecy, there's angels, there's multiple attestations of the Holy Spirit at work. And yet here... Those spirit and the miraculous and the supernatural are not absent, they're subdued. The primary marker here is that God's favor and kindness is upon this growing boy. He's growing well. But the divine is in the background. 
what's put in the forefront is Jesus' humanity. First of all, Jesus' humanity is revealed to us. His true human nature and the fact that we are reminded in this passage that Jesus' knowledge was limited. We, we see in this passage one who grows in his knowledge and his understanding. Now, rightly, the passage focuses on how much he knew and how much he got right. He is talking with the teachers, the priests in the temple, and according to the manner of that day, there's questions and answers which leads to debate and going back and forth, and they are amazed by what Jesus is saying. He shows maturity and knowledge well beyond his years, like a child prodigy. And yet, Jesus doesn't know everything. The passage makes it clear that he grows in wisdom. And in all likelihood, the thing that transpires with this uh, leaving of Mary and Joseph and him staying behind is likely a miscommunication. That, that some people would stay two days for this feast and some would stay the full seven days. That there might have been an, an assumption on his part or their part that he was leaving with them while other people in the group might have stayed behind. He doesn't know that they've left. He's been focused here. On one hand, Jesus is amazing in his knowledge, but on display here is the fact that he grows in knowledge. Even later in life, when Jesus comes into the fullness of his ministry, when he is preaching with profound prophetic authority and people are still amazed, yet in Matthew 24, 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus was fully human in that, like us, humanly speaking, he didn't know all things. Humanly speaking, he grew in knowledge and understanding over time. That when the eternal Son of God took on human flesh in order to be our mediator, he took on the fullness of human experience and went through that human experience as all of us are meant to do, dependent on God's revelation of truth to us. The incarnation was not a, a godly nature inside the appearance of a human being. It was not a, a, a divine mind inside an outside human suit. But Jesus was fully human inside and out, taking to himself a taking to a divine nature as one person. To put it another way, an early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this: For that which he has not assumed. He has not healed. Jesus is fully human, even to the point of growing in knowledge, humanly speaking, not knowing all things. That in order to fulfill his mission, not drawing upon his infinite knowledge, his omniscience as the eternal Son of God, but going forward in this life as a human being fully dependent on the revelation of God to him. So that like us who are limited and yet sinful, in his limitations that are not sinful, we could be fully redeemed. But it also reminds us of something that I think we easily pass by, that in this growth and development, that Jesus lived a full breadth of human experience. That Jesus was an embryo in Mary's womb. That he was a toddler 
that he was a child, that he was a teenager and an adult. And though he did not live as an elderly person, he knew what it was to face impending death. Let me say that again. Our Savior was a toddler, or as this passage makes explicit, our Savior was an adolescent, a preteen, a 12-year-old. I'll just be honest with you. It's a lot easier for me to conceive of a perfectly obedient adult Jesus than a perfectly obedient 12-year-old. And yet Jesus, our Savior, who took on human flesh to redeem us, took on full humanity knowing what it's like to be a toddler who can't yet speak trying to form those words. An adolescent going through change. I think this expounds our horizons on the wonderful verses in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands what we have gone through as human beings because he has gone through it himself. Teenagers, Jesus was a teenager. He went through the hormonal changes of a teenager. And though the culture was different, he still went through the shift from childhood to adulthood, trying to figure out, who am I? What does God want from me? What am I supposed to do? He responded to his human limitations, not with sin, but with obedience. He knows what it's like to be tempted. As he experienced those changes in hormones, he didn't let that lead to giving in to lustful thoughts and actions. Though he felt different, not giving in to temptation to self-harm or the harming of others. Though he was tired and hungry, not yelling and screaming at his siblings. Jesus knew what it was to be a teenager. He lived the life that you live today. Jesus knows, and he lived it out, and he obeyed in all the places that you teenagers haven't, and all the places that your parents before you didn't either, so that you could be saved. So to you teenagers, and to you kids, and to you adults, go to him. Not just with questions of theology and doctrine, what does the law say? But go to him with your questions and your doubts and your fears about your feelings, about your friendships, about your bodies. The prerogative of Jesus your Savior is not just how to be a good person, though it is absolutely that. It is to be a fully human good person. That's why he took on full humanity. That's why he grew in knowledge. That's why his body changed. That's why he came was born and lived and died and rose for us. And it also reminds us that all of life is sacred. That Jesus was willing to live as an embryo developing in his mother and go through infancy and go through childhood and go through the teenage years and to be an adult. There is no stage of human life that is below the care and concern of our Savior. 
for he took it upon himself in order to redeem it. The unborn and needy infants, smudge-faced six-year-olds, teenagers struggling with anxiety and fear, young adults and the elderly, they all matter to our Savior. And so as the Son of God took on full humanity in order to heal it, we reflect our Savior as we love the full spectrum of humanity and seek to bring them to Him. Jesus came and lived a human life to come to the knowledge of Him and the salvation. He takes on everything that in Him everything might find healing and renewing. We know Jesus better through His humanity. We also know Jesus better through His priority. If I didn't know the Gospels, I knew just a little bit about Jesus' ministry. I would assume that if the gospel writers wanted to write something about Jesus' teenage years, it would have been miracles. It would have been feats of wonder. It would have been a little bit like you know the Harry Potter series, whereas Harry comes into his powers, he doesn't realize how powerful he is, but begins to exhibit them. The words here are not invented by the minds of man. These are the truths of how our Savior lived. He revealed his priority not to show his power, but his heart for his Father. Now, first, let me say, you can imagine Mary and Joseph's concern and fear and anxiety when they discover that Jesus is gone, right? They travel for a day, which means they have to travel a day back, and then they spend another day looking around for him. That's how we get three days here. And, and that concern and that anxiety and that fear that comes out in Mary's question. He says, why have you, why, she says, why have you treated us this way? We behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I know I've been there. I've blamed my children for the distress that they've caused me, whether or not they've done something wrong or not. Projecting my fears upon their behavior. But notice Jesus' response here. He says, why were you looking for me? Which is less like, why would you look for me? It's not that he doesn't think they should be concerned about where he is, but why were you looking for me? You should have known where I was at. He goes on to say, I must be in my father's house. If you're looking for a duck, you should go to water. If you're looking for a pig, you go to mud. If you're looking for Jesus, you should look for him in his father's house. In that question, he's asking, have you forgotten what the angel said about me? The things you've told me about how I came to be born? Or do you not understand about me now? And verse 50 tells us they didn't fully understand. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them when he said, I must be in my father's house. But what is that priority? What does it mean that he's in his father's house? Jesus' priority was God's word and relationship with him. Knowing the Father and being with him. Do you not know that I must be in my Father's house where his word is discussed and taught that we would grow in understanding in the Father's house where we come into his presence to worship him? This is Jesus' priority. 
Like the child who is always singing that grows up to be a music teacher. Jesus gives us hints of what is to come. That he is not just about his father's business now, but even as he goes out into ministry, preaching and teaching with crowds after him, yet he often disappears. And the disciples have the same question as Mary and Joseph. Where did Jesus go? He withdraws to be in the presence of his father whom he loves. This is the priority of Jesus. But notice also then what is lacking. Though Jesus probably does not have a full conception here of what his his messianic call is, what his ministry will fully look like, he's waiting for the Spirit to reveal the Father's will in that. Yet even as he has a sense of what he's supposed to be, even as Mary and Joseph would said, well, you're supposed to be the Christ, we don't see Jesus here gathering military intelligence, watching the Roman guards posted all over Jerusalem during the Passover. We don't see Jesus performing feats of magic or miracles to impress people around him. He's not engaged in social action or trying to foment a charismatic movement. These are the things that Mary and Joseph might have expected. Well, he's supposed to overthrow the Romans. He's going to be the next David. He's going to be the next leader. And yet, to the extent that they get that right, what they miss out on is that all of that is supposed to flow from his heart for God's word and relationship with him. Jesus' priority and that which will drive his future ministry is his love of his heavenly father. The teaching, the healing, the rebuking of the religious leaders, his miracles, the discipleship, all comes under the priority of knowing the father and making him known. We often think sometimes that it's Jesus' love for us that motivates his saving of us. And if you think that, you're right. But don't limit Jesus' reason for coming to save us to that. It's not just Jesus' love for us that motivates his saving of us, but it is also his love for the Father, whom he wants to glorify, whose love he wants us to know, so that we can then be in the household of his Father. It's not just his love for us as the Son. It's the love of the Father that he wants us to experience as he experiences. The Son of God was incarnate in order to reveal perfectly to us our Heavenly Father so that he could be the perfect mediator to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. The rest of Jesus' ministry was for that purpose. And so this causes us to examine our expectations. Mary and Joseph had all kinds of signals and words and messages about who Jesus was supposed to be and still did not understand what he was about. They expected him to be in other places. I don't know where they looked, but they looked a number of places before they went to the temple. They knew that he was supposed to be the Messiah, but later in life we know that Mary and Jesus' brothers struggled as he began his ministry. The question we need to ask is whether our expectations of Jesus align with what his actual priorities are. Have we projected our priorities upon Jesus and the call to follow him? Perhaps popular influence, 
or the judgment of sinners, or political victory, or social action, or physical comfort? Are those the priorities that Jesus has for himself and for his church? If Jesus' priority was fellowship with the Father, then are we receiving that from him and living accordingly? Do we reflect our Savior's priority in response to what he has done for us to experience that knowledge of the Father and relationship with him? Jesus said, I must be in my Father's house. It's Sunday morning. Must we be in our Father's house? Must we be in prayer? Moment by moment, speaking to our Father. Must we be reading instructions from our Father in the Word? Jesus heals our wounds. Jesus lifts up the poor. He challenges the self-righteous. He casts out demons. But why? To show the Father. To prepare us to have the Father. That we might dwell in our Father's house forever with Jesus. This is his priority. Already beginning to manifest itself as a 12-year-old and will explode in new ways throughout his perfect ministry as our perfect Savior. Which then brings us to what to me is the most surprising revelation about Jesus in this passage, his humility. His obedience. Jesus has learned from the pious example of Mary and Joseph. Verse 41 talks about it's their habit to go and worship as is commanded according to the law. But what I want to draw attention to is verse 51 and verse 52. That after Jesus reveals that he must be about his father's house and Mary and Joseph not fully understanding this, verse 51 says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Verse 51 tells us that Jesus was submissive to Mary and Joseph. That might not be too significant on its own. A good Jewish child was supposed to obey the commandment to honor your father and mother. There were serious repercussions in the law if they didn't. But consider that truth in the context of this passage. Jesus has just done two things. The first thing he's done is he has amazed people. He has astonished people, not just his parents, but the religious leaders in the temple. Fame might be too strong a word, but he has certainly demonstrated his great skill, his knowledge and talent according to the things that matter to his community. If you want to be important in the community, you're a priest or a teacher of the law. And these important people have said, Jesus, wow, you're pretty incredible. The potential for him is a bright future ahead. I might ask, how might we, particularly as a teenager, but even, let's face it, as adults, react after we have impressed important people? Pride? Making it about ourselves? The second thing, he has shown that though Mary and Joseph are his earthly parents, he has a higher authority, his heavenly father. He's amazed and astounded important influential people and he's just told his mom and dad, you are important but you're number two. 
Yet neither of these is an excuse for pride, for arrogance, or looking down on his parents. For the same knowledge of God's word, the same heart for his heavenly father that was on display when he was engaging the teachers and leaders of the people was on display when he submitted to his earthly parents. For he could not uphold his purpose, his priority. He could not prioritize the father while disobeying his parents or by being arrogant. He didn't say, this is my higher purpose, so it doesn't matter how I respond to these lesser purposes. Not only is he submissive, but he's humble to wait. Like, this is the time, right? You know, if a 12-year-old shows great athletic promise, what do you do? Do you take him back to the back country? No, you sign him up for all the greatest sports teams so that his, his talent can be amplified. A kid's great in school, we want to put them in gifted and talented to set them on the fast track. They're a gifted musician, sign them up. Hopefully they'll make it to Juilliard. Jesus goes back to Nazareth away from all these influential teachers, away from attention, away from opportunity to wait on the Lord, to grow more in wisdom and stature until it's God's time for him. In humility and submission to the Father, he humbles himself and submits to his earthly parents. Should it surprise us? It might because it's not our sinful nature's propensity. But it is consistent with the eternal character of the eternal Son. Because he humbled himself to take on human flesh. Because he placed himself, humanly speaking, under the limits of time and space and body and energy. Who, though the giver of the law, submitted to perfect obedience under the law. Who, though the king of all creation, washed the feet of his disciples. This is what is hinted at in verse 52. That as amazing as all this is, there's more to come. It's just the start. This is not just a note on how good a kid Jesus was, but it is reflected on the very means of our salvation. Compare honoring your father and mother to submitting to the shame of the cross. The just wrath of God for us placed on him in death. This is the love of the eternal Son, who though he's above all, who though he is under none, whom none can make demands of, gave himself, offers to us, serves us, in order to accomplish our salvation to the glory of God. Because Jesus' priority was to fulfill the priority of honoring his heavenly Father, then he would not, then he could not excuse any form of disobedience and sin against his parents under the justification of, I have greater things to do. I'm an important person. Time is money. I've got bigger fish to fry. Jesus did not justify lesser obedience for greater obedience, but in humility obeyed even in the lesser, knowing that the greater obedience, the greater mission could not be fulfilled without it. We have been given a great calling to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to glorify the Father, to carry forth the good news, to make disciples, to teach what Jesus taught. Yet that mission goes not in us saying, look how great we are. Look how righteous we are. 
Look how smart and gifted we are, but rather in humbling ourselves who are far less righteous, far less gifted, far less knowledgeable than Jesus and submitting in full obedience to God as Jesus did in loving him and our neighbors fully. It means that the ends do not justify the means as Christians. That Jesus would not disobey his parents so that he could glorify the Father, but could not glorify the Father apart from honoring his father and mother. It means that we don't justify pornography in order to avoid adultery. That we don't engage in tax evasion so that we're not tempted to rob a bank. That we can't belittle or hate our political opponents in order to vote according to God's standards. We can't proclaim the gospel of God's loving, perfect righteousness in Christ on our behalf so that we can receive mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation while we are proud and arrogant and judging our neighbors. The mission of the church cannot be fulfilled without humble obedience because Jesus' mission could not be fulfilled without humble obedience even though he was the author of life itself. And yet when we fail, when we excuse the lesser sins, when we justify ourselves saying, well, I did this, I have this job to do, I have important things over here, I'll lose face with people over here if I don't do this, where we fail, praise God that Jesus obeyed. This morning we've looked at a beautiful snapshot in the life of young Jesus. It differs from ours because we know that even good trajectories we had when we were younger would be followed by deviation from the path. We know the scars that we bear from sins committed against us and the things that we've done sinfully. Teenage mistakes and harm, childhood sin and harm, adult sin and harm. I want to close with the fact that what we see in this passage is your adolescence. That if you are in Christ, though you have failed, though you have not submitted to your parents, though you have not been wise, though God the Father has not been your chief aim in life, that what we see here in Jesus, in his humanity, perfectly oriented toward the God the Father with full obedience is yours because he came to live that perfect life to offer it to you. Romans 5 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus' perfectly obedient childhood his perfectly obedient adulthood, his perfectly obedient adolescence, if you are in Christ, is yours. This picture is you in the eyes of God the Father. So let us walk not trusting in ourselves, not looking to us, but looking to Jesus who lived this life for us, died in our place and rose that we might have life in him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you came. You lived and you died and you rose and you are incarnate. God and man, eternally joined in one person, sitting at the right hand of God the Father even now so that one day we would have perfect enjoyment of 
being in the Father's house. Thank you, Jesus, that you know us, that you know our weakness, that you know our temptation, and yet in all the ways that we are tempted, you were obedient so that we could know your Heavenly Father. Help us to walk in that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.